This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. With that, we move into a time of scripture reading. Today's passage is taken from 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. I invite Sister Caris to come and read this passage for us, and following which, Pastor Nicholas will come and proclaim God's word to us from this passage. Sister Caris, please. Good morning, Church. Today's uh, Bible reading scripture passage is from the book of 1 Kings chapter 8, from verse 1 to verse 21. If you are using the Church Bible, it will be on page 344. 344. 1 Kings chapter 8. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the Israelites came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark and overshadowed the Ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place, and they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. Then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth to my father David. For he said, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built so that my name might be there. But I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. 
my father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, "You did well to have it in your heart to build a temple for my name. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple, but your son, your own flesh and blood. He is the one who will build the temple for my name." The Lord has kept the promise He made. I have succeeded David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I have provided a place there for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that He made with our ancestors when He brought them out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, brothers and sisters.、Uh, thank you for joining us today.、Uh, let me pray as we go through, as we look at God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear your word preached,、uh, may our wandering thoughts be fixed on you.、Uh, may our affections composed, and may our flat and cold desires be quickened into fervent longings and thirstings after you, for your glory and our growth. Amen. Well, as an intern during my schooling days. Uh, my internship boss、uh, brought me to one of these、uh, entrepreneurship、uh, networking events. Then suddenly he said, "Nick, I want you to meet someone." So he brought me、uh, further in across the room to this、uh, older gentleman. Now this older gentleman, he was surrounded by lots of people talking to him, lots, lots of people listening to him. And my boss cut in through that conversation and said,、uh, "Excuse me, I'd like you to meet、uh, my intern, Nicholas." So I took the person's hand, I shook it, I said, "Hi, I'm Nicholas." And then there was an awkward pause. I was expecting I was expecting him to say something about himself, and so he didn't say anything. So I asked, "And you are?" <laughs> Now then, this man looked at me surprised, and he said, "Philip Yeo." Then I realized, of all the people at this meeting, I should have recognized the Philip Yeo. At that time, he was the chairman of Spring Singapore. Special advisor for economic development in the Prime Minister's office, guest of honor at the at this networking session. So, needless to say, I never got the job at Spring. <laughs> I failed to know who's most important. I wasn't most important. Someone else was. I needed to know who that was. It's the same for all of us. We need to know who's the most important in our lives. I mean, otherwise, we won't just be an embarrassing situation like me. It might be going the wrong direction in your life, in your relationships. And the most important person that we need to know is God. Now that means、uh, we live for God's glory. We don't live for、uh, our own glory. So we see what this means、uh, in three parts today. In our passage. So first,、uh, don't steal God's glory. Next, behold God's glory. And thirdly,、uh, give God the glory. Okay, we will go through the first part. Quite quickly,、uh, chapter seven,、uh, the whole the whole chapter. Last week in chapters five and six,、uh, King Solomon,、uh, the wise king, the wisest king to ever rule, he completed the inside of the temple. And this temple, as、uh, Denzel said just now, this temple is a place for God to be with His people. And so, today's passage,、uh, the focus should be on the stuff just outside the temple and about why God, how God responds to this temple. But first. We are interrupted by Solomon's、uh, palaces. 
Solomon's glory that distracts us from God's glory in the temple. As we think about this, it makes us wonder what is going on in Solomon's heart. So if you look at our Bibles, it's chapters, uh, just one verse before our passage, in chapter 6, verse 38, Solomon, it says that Solomon took seven years to build God's house, to build God's temple. And then the immediate next verse, chapter 7, verse 1, you see how long did Solomon take to build his own house? He took 13 years. Now that this longer time to, uh, to build his own houses makes sense because Solomon built more buildings over a larger area. Solomon built at least five buildings here. So the first uh, building, well, the first building he, he built, the, the palace of the forest of Lebanon, was already you know, four times larger than the temple, than God's house. It was uh, measured in verse 2, 48 by 24 meters. And the temple, as saw last week, it was 29 by 10 meters. So it's much, much bigger. And there was just one building. Solomon built five buildings. And that's not the only building uh, that, that we see. You see, the Bible wants you to know that Solomon built a palace for Pharaoh's daughter. Chapter 7, verse 8. So in the second half of, that, of verse 8, Solomon also built a palace like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he married. Solomon uh, married uh, Pharaoh's daughter back in chapter 3, verse 1. So in, in, it's a few weeks ago. So in that passage, uh, the, the Bible tells us that Solomon did that to make an alliance with Pharaoh, uh, the, the Pharaoh king of Egypt. Now, and last week we saw if, uh, Solomon built the temple so that God might live with his people permanently. So it's a permanent structure so that uh, God won't, will stay with his people permanently. So this makes, makes me wonder, perhaps this permanent house for Pharaoh's daughter was to make the alliance with Pharaoh permanent, maybe to cement that relationship. Perhaps this suggests that Solomon is now trusting in foreign powers rather than God for his security. Now this passage uh, makes us ask lots of questions about Solomon's heart. But the passage doesn't explicitly say that there's something wrong uh, with Solomon. Now there's nothing wrong with, I mean, to build, for him to build grand houses the houses befitting of a king, of his fame, of his wealth. Yeah, but this passage here interrupts uh, the, the, the story of the building of the temple. So what makes me wonder, what is going on uh, in Solomon's heart? And perhaps this is uh, relevant for us, our wealthier Singaporeans, or we might pursue material comforts, achievements today. And the Bible does say, uh, in Ecclesiastes, Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is the gift of God. Oh yes, it is right to enjoy the good things that God gives us. But what is going on in your heart? Is our glory distracting us from God's glory? Are our possessions and achievements taking us away from God's glory? So I don't know what's going on with Solomon, but the passage seems to suggest that there's something wrong. But for the moment, uh, the passage returns back to the temple in verse 13. And we'll, yeah, verse 13. So we'll see Huram in verse 13. Huram uh, did, okay, some of the Bibles will say it's Hiram, but I'll just use Huram uh, in, in the NIV. So Huram did all the bronze work uh, for the temple, 
since all the, the gold stuff is inside the temple, so it's bronze work, it's all outside the temple. And our passage is a long passage from verse 13 all the way to, uh, to 39. It's all about a few things that Huram made. So first thing we see is Huram's pillars in verse 15. Verse 15. And he, uh, he cast two bronze pillars, each 18 cubits high, 12 cubits in circumference. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on tops of the pillars. Each capital was five cubits high. So each, bronze, each of these two bronze pillars were nine meters high. And the circumference is six meters. So this is a huge pillar. And on top of it, that's what they call the capital, like the head of the pillar. There's a lot of detail uh, which we, we're not going through today. But it's a very impressive pillar. Now, nine meters, that's about as tall as our Malayan. When I, have, I have some friends coming over uh, to visit me a few years back, and we went to all the tourist sites, and we passed by the Malayan. And so they, uh, one of their children asked me, uh, Uncle Nick, what does the Malayan mean? Now, so I said something like, well, a long time ago, a prince saw a lion on, on this island, and this prince decided to give, give this island the name Lion City or Singapore. So that's why that's the uh, Malayan. So this huge structure requires an explanation. So as the people go to the temple and they see these two huge um, Malayan-sized pillars, they'll be also, they also wonder, well, what do these pillars mean? Okay, let's look at verse 21, chapter 7, verse 21. He erected pillars at the portico of the temple. The pillar to the south, he named Jekin, the one and the one in the north, Boaz. So we know the names of the pillars. So just Jekin and there's Boaz. Some of your Bibles have a footnote that says Jekin means he will establish, and Boaz means in strength. He will establish in strength. So these magnificent pillars teaches all the visitors at the temple that God establishes his temple by his strength. So when visitors come and they see uh, the glory of the temple, all the intricate carvings uh, all around the temple, they learn that these, this, sorry, these two pillars teach them that these pillars, or that this whole temple is not established by, by the huge workforce, a 200,000 strong workforce that built this temple. This temple wasn't established by Solomon's wisdom in his architecture, and not even by Huram's two huge pillars. These pillars say that this temple is established by God. These pillars glorify God who established the temple by his strength. That's the pillars. Your next, the next feature that Huram makes shows us the problem with us people. The sea and the basins. Now this is big focus on the, this, huge bronze, this huge bronze sea. It's like a big basin and these 10 smaller movable basins. So both tell uh, the same story, uh, that people sin. Let's look at the sea first, uh, verse 23. 23. He made the sea of cast metal, circular in shape, uh, measuring 10 cubits from rim to rim, 5 cubits high. It took a line of 30 cubits to measure it around. So this was a, a huge container of water. The diameter is about 10 cubits, about 5 meters, and the circumference around uh, 
14, uh, 14, 14 and a half meters. So this bronze sea, this big container, was meant to re replace the bronze basin back in the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle uh, was another building, it's like a tent that God asked the people to make. A long time ago, about 480 years ago, when God's people left Egypt uh, to come to live in the promised land, they were moving about uh, in tents. They live in tents. And during that time, God's people also worshipped God in a tent. They called this tent the tabernacle. And the priests would do their duties at this tabernacle. And before they do their duties at the tabernacle, they must wash. They must do the ceremonial washing. Okay, so Exodus, this is uh, part of the regulations about the washing. This is what God said. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, uh, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for generations to come. So for the priests, wash or die. This washing was to ceremonially clean them uh, before they start doing their duties in the temple. Now, this, was with the, this is what they did for the temporary tents, the temporary tabernacle. And this is what they also did for the more, per, the, for the more permanent temple. God's priest must wash or die. And now in, in 1 Kings, we will see that there are 10 movable basins. So we, the passage focuses on the stands first, in verse 27. He also made 10 movable stands of bronze, each was four cubits long, four wide and three high. So there are these stands, and Huram put a basin on each stand, verse uh, 30. Each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles, and each had a basin resting on four supports cast with reefs on each side. So each had a basin resting on them. Now these basins was, weren't as big as the Bronze Sea, but they're still huge. Now, the verse 38 says they, they each can hold 40 bars of water. That's about 1,000 liters. Now these bronze, uh, these bronze basins, smaller basins, they were used for uh, washing the burnt offerings. So this is a parallel passage in Chronicles. She then made 10 basins for washing and placed 5 on the south side and 5 on the north. In them, uh, the things to be used for the burnt offerings were rinsed. So God's people, they rinsed their offerings uh, in these uh, ten basins. Now, what, does, what, what do the, all these things mean? Or what do these ten basins mean? Now, these ten basins tell us, that even with the new temple, they moved on from the, the tabernacle, there's a progression in relationship, yes. Uh, God's people still needed to offer sacrifices. They still needed God's forgiveness. This means that people still sinned. So there's no real glory for man. It's actually the opposite. This temple tells us that there is only shame for men. So God gloriously establishes his temple. A man's sin, our sin, brings us shame before God. And when, what we, uh, sometimes what we glory in takes away from from God's glory. What we glory in distracts us from God's glory. What we glory in steals from God's glory. Last year when we looked at look, uh, 1 Corinthians, we saw that well, before God, no one can boast. But we might boast that we've got the wisdom, of course we've got the grades, we've got the life experience, but our wisdom can't fix us. 
This is what God's word says. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of the age? Has not God made the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? Or since in the wisdom of God, the world through his wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So our wisdom becomes our shame. Our glory cannot save us. And God shames whatever we place our glory in by sending Jesus to die on the cross. This means that you and I, we cannot boast in how good we are uh, in, whatever, in whatever areas. Before God, there is no glory. Before God, we only have shame. So don't steal God's glory. And that's the first thing we see in our passage. And now we'll, we'll be spending a little bit more time in chapter 8. First, we behold God's glory. And at this point in chapter 8, uh, the, God's grand temple is completed. But however grand it is, this temple is still an empty shell. For this to be really a temple of God, God must be in it. So God's people take the Ark of God's Covenant and put it inside. Now this, uh, this Ark is a, is a box. It's like God represents God's throne. And God rules his people from this throne. God's with his people from this throne. So this ark must be put in the temple. And the people, they put in a lot of effort to, make it, to do it right. So you see in verse 1 to 5, man's obedience and worship. Look, King Solomon and all the people do all the right things. You see, they gather all the leaders. In verse 3 and 4, the priests took, priest took up the ark and the tabernacle and everything in them. Now this is, what was, this is different from what Solomon's father David did in the past when he first moved the ark. And for those of us uh, who were here last year, we saw that David, uh, what he did is he put the Ark of God, that represents God's presence, on a cart and pulled by oxen. So in this case, David went against God's uh, clear instruction that priests must carry the Ark. So what happened with David is uh, the oxen stumbled and one of the priests uh, touched the Ark and God struck him down. So if you look at verse 3 and 4, you see three times the Bible says the priest uh, took the ark. Verse 3. When all the elders had, of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and the sac- uh, sacred furnishings in it. And the third time, the priests and the Levites carried them up. Three times we see that they obeyed God. And in verse 5, we see Solomon and the people sacrificed countless uh, amounts, countless numbers of sheep and cattle to worship God. So this was very extravagant worship. So the, the priest uh, brought the ark into the most holy place inside the temple so God can uh, worship, so God, sorry, God's people can worship God. But verse 9 is very interesting. You see, the Bible pauses the narrative, the, the of what's going on to tell us what's inside the ark, to give us a peek at what's inside. And what's inside is the basis of that relationship between God and his people. This was how God could live with his people and how God's people could live with God. So what's inside? Verse 9. There was nothing in the ark except two stone tablets that Moses placed in it at Horeb. 
where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. The two stone tablets contain the Ten Commandments from God. That's what we read during our responsive reading. And God's people, they were to obey these Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments, they got as part of that covenant, that agreement, that contract with God that they made at Horeb, at Mount Sinai. This covenant, this agreement is where God will be, God's, will be his people's God and his people will be faithful to, to follow God. And if they did, if God's people obeyed God, then God will bless them. And if they didn't, God will let calamity take over. But you see, the, the narr- this narrative still continues. It, it ends with, when they came out of the land of Egypt. But why talk about them coming out of the land of Egypt? I remember in the past, when I was training as an intern in church, I remember going for a course, and this pastor, David Cook, used to say, Two comes before three. Now, what does that mean? I mean my, 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 my number three knows that, and soon at number four grows up, I'm going to teach her two comes before three. Yeah, but what does that mean? What is he talking about? And what this pastor means is Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 comes before Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Verse 2 I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, the, out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. So this covenant isn't merely uh, obey God and God will be your God. Disobey and God will disown you. No. This covenant begins with verse 2. It begins with God rescuing the people out of Egypt before they have even done any obeying. So the heart of worship inside the temple is God's grace. God graciously saved his people. God graciously made these people his holy people. So now God is saying, now that I've saved you, now that I've made you my people, live as my holy people. So as the people reflect on the temple and what's inside the temple, they remember not just the Ten Commandments, no, they remember the basis of their relationship, that God has graciously saved them and made them his people. So they live as God's people. Uh, even though uh, God is gracious, uh, God's people cannot treat him like, I don't know, a buddy-buddy. Look at verse 10, you see what happens. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. So what happened? So what happened is the priests put the ark in, in the, inside the most holy place, they left the temple, and they couldn't go back in because the cloud from the God descended and the glory of God filled the temple. Now this week, I, I, I really pondered hard on what this glory of God meant. So I had a long discussion with Pastor Andrew Wong about it too. And what I learned is God's glory is the revealed weight of the, of the Godness of God or the revealed weight of how unique God is how special God is, I mean, in a theological term, how holy God is. All of God, who God was, came down and was in a temple in a limited way. And just that small bit overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed the priests. It's, now, everything about God, all his attributes, who he is, is very, very different from us. 
we, we like to say about the difference from light and dark, but I realize this doesn't fit because this great difference is even greater than the difference between light and dark because light and dark are created. God created light and dark. The difference is between the created, the created versus the uncreated. God is the uncreated one and we are the creatures. Our created finite senses can, cannot have the, doesn't have the ability to behold the uncreated infinite God. Our, our created eyes cannot use uh, created colors to behold the infinite uncreated God. Our created ears cannot use created sounds to hear the, you know, the uncreated sound that God makes. So if we met God, well, our, our senses would overload trying to behold who God is. And if we met God on top of that, God would destroy us for our sin. So why did God come down in the temple? To show that God accepts this temple as his own. Now this is a big step forward in our relationship between God and his people. You see, when God's people came out of Egypt uh, last time, God uh, made, asked them to make this tents, these mobile tents, this tabernacle. And when they were done with that tent, what happened is God's glory came down in the tent so that no one could enter the tent. And that was 480 years ago. And the same thing is happening with Solomon's temple 480 years later. So this means that God approved the tent and God approves this temple. And the difference between the tent and the temple is that this temple is meant to be permanent. So in verse 12, Solomon hopes that this will be a place that God would dwell forever. That God's people will always be with God. That God's people will always be safe and secure because God is always with his people. But as you can see in verse 10, God's presence reveals something wrong. Something wrong not with God, but with us. God wants to live with his people, yes, but we cannot come near to God. I mean, the passage says the priests cannot go near. But the priests, remember, the priests are the most holy of, of them all. The priests, they use the, the newly made bronze sea to wash themselves, to, to make sure they can enter the temple. But even they are not good enough. With all the worship, with all the obedience, all the sacrifices that people make, the priests still couldn't enter the presence of God. The most holy people in Israel are not good enough because we have a sin problem. But what this means is every time God's people reflect on the Ten Commandments inside, they know that God has graciously saved them, yes, but they know that they cannot live up to God's standard. The covenant inside the temple acts as their prosecuting lawyer, accusing them of law-breaking, accusing them of rebelling against this gracious God who saved them. This covenant product pronounces God's judgment on them. They deserve death. If God's glory continues to be with these people who continue to sin, then God will destroy them all. And that's what happens in 2 Kings chapter 25. God, God let a foreign nation destroy his temple and the people were exiled. So how can this glorious God live with his sinful people? It cannot be through the physical temple. It cannot be, you know, in the past, through that physical tent. It has to be some other way. The tabernacle and the tent point to another way. 
And that way is for people, for you and I, to turn to Jesus our Lord. This is what the Bible says. Even to this day, when, Saul, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But where, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now Moses here refers to the, the law, the Ten Commandments and everything else that God spoke to Moses about. Every time Moses is read, every time people read the law, they are reading how incompetent they are. That veil leads to death. The solution is for them to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is true life. And that's not all, you see. We don't just start with Jesus, just start believing in Jesus, and we move on to something else. No, we start with Jesus, and we must keep on beholding Jesus, keep on beholding the gospel. A few verses later, and we all... Uh, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. So unlike the priests who cannot stand, cannot face God's glory, you and I, we must keep beholding the divine glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You must keep reflecting on Jesus' glory uh, in his death and resurrection. His death and resurrection reveals God's glorious grace to save us sinners, to make him his people. And this glory makes, transforms us to become more and more and more like the glorious Lord Jesus. Now that's why we, uh, with our series in, in 1 Kings, and when, or when we read our Bibles at home, we must behold the glory of Christ in the text. We must reflect on what the glory of Christ means for us. You see, if you don't behold Christ, if you're not amazed by Christ's glory in the Bible, then you cannot be transformed to become like Christ. You cannot grow. So each time we behold Christ's glory, we become more and more like Jesus. And we do that with our personal Bible reading, uh, each one-to-one, uh, each small group Bible study, each sermon. We want to see what is it about Jesus? What is it, what is it about God's glory, Jesus' glory, uh, that, I, that I must reflect on today? What, how does that glory change, me, change my life today or this week? And that is how we grow. We behold Jesus' glory. So we have seen uh, how we must not steal God's glory and how we must behold Jesus' glory. Last, uh, very quickly, we will see that we must give God the glory. So Solomon said uh, to the people gathered in verse 15, Praise uh, be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth to my father David. So God made promises with his mouth, and God kept those promises by his hand. So God promised uh, Solomon's father David that his son would build the temple. So that's what uh, verse 16 to 19 are about. And verse 20 to 21, God has kept those promises through Solomon. So God, Solomon uh, built the temple in verse 20. The Lord has kept this, the promise he made. I have succeeded my father David, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the, for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. So if you compare verse 15, and verse 20, you might ask, 
who built the temple? Is it God or is it Solomon? The answer, yes. God built the temple and God built the temple by making promises and keeping those promises and God worked through Solomon to build the temple. So this was how the, God's temple was built. And in, and in, this, in this passage, verse 14 to 21, Solomon glorified God for building the temple by making promises and keeping those promises. God was, was involved from start to end in building this temple. In the same way for you and I today, Jesus is working on another building project. In the same way as God, Jesus made promises, and Jesus is keeping those promises. So we learn that in Matthew, that Jesus is building his church. Jesus said, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. God is building his church on the foundation of Peter and the other apostles as they teach. And hell, Hades, cannot overcome Jesus' church to steal people out of God's of Jesus' uh, kingdom. No, they cannot. Now, God, Jesus keeps his promise to build a church through you and I teaching each other about Jesus, teaching each other the Bible. Ephesians chapter 4. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Jesus is building his church. And how he does it? Jesus builds through you and I, speaking the truth to one another, and together, the whole body grows. Together, Jesus' church grows. So for you and I, this means that we must give Jesus the glory for building the church. We must keep trusting that Jesus is building his church. Now, sometimes the church feels weak. Sometimes there's persecutions from outside, people not liking the church, not liking what, what Christians teach. Sometimes within the church, uh, there are conflicts. No matter how weak the church seems, Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus is building his church. So we glorify Jesus for building his church. Now, this means two things for us. First, don't despise teaching. Jesus works uh, through us, teaching one another to, uh, to build up the church. So don't despise teaching. But trust that teaching is what builds the church. This is Jesus' method to build the church. It's not through miracles. It's not through special signs. It's not through social work. Well, to let Jesus build the church, the Bible must be taught. So when we have small groups, we make sure that the Bible is taught. When we do evangelism, we must make sure that the Bible is taught. Now, the Bible's message is countercultural. And we might worry that this message feels weak. You're not sure that whether, you're not sure well, pe- whether people listen. But we, we, so what we do is we try to explain the Bible in a way that they will listen. But we must teach the Bible. We teach that Christ is building His church uh, through us teaching. 
First, don't despise teaching. Uh, second, don't glorify people. We glorify Christ. We don't glorify the teacher. We may appreciate uh, preachers and teachers, but we don't glorify them. What we do is we honor, we glorify Christ for working through them, for working through the preacher, working through a teacher. We glorify Christ uh, for building his church through his word. Don't despise teaching and don't uh, glorify people. So who is the most important person uh, in building a church? Uh, it's not your pastor or your Bible study leader. It's Christ. Sometimes the church feels weak. Sometimes teaching the Bible feels weak. My friends, Jesus is building his church through you and I teaching his word. So what we see today is don't steal uh, God's glory. And next, behold Jesus' glory to grow. And third, give Jesus the glory for building his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for nourishing us with your words of life. Please use this passage to continue your good work in us until it's complete at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Nick, for proclaiming God's word from today's passage. Uh, because this is Communion Sunday, so we will not have time to, do, uh, to get together and discuss some reflection questions. However, uh, Pastor Nick has kindly prepared some so that we can have some of these conversations about what we have learned uh, over morning tea or even over lunch. So two questions for us to be thinking about. Number one, how might we steal God's glory? And number two, what does it mean to behold God's glory today? So if you wish, you may take a picture of the questions and hopefully this will fuel your conversations later on. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.